Welcome to To Your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are in week 20. I'm Woo-hoo. proud of you if you've made it this far, um, halfway-ish, maybe through, not even halfway through the year. But hey, we're, we're, we're trucking along. And I know many of you all I've talked to are, are continuing to work through and continue to follow. And we hope these podcasts are, are helpful and a blessing to you. And so we and are, remember that as you read these things that sometimes feel boring and redundant, you are setting the stage and giving yourself a foundation for understanding, interpreting the rest of scripture. So if you get bored or you feel like maybe stopping, don't do it because these things are so important to understand and they will illuminate the way you read and understand scripture further on. Yeah. Don't worry. We'll deal with more repetitive stuff when we get to Deuteronomy. Yeah, we but, will. Uh, yeah, we are uh, still here in numbers. We are uh, kind of finishing up the story uh, and we'll get into Acts as well today. And so uh, we pick right up in chapter 26 where uh, we are taking another census. So mm-hmm. the book of Numbers is named after these censuses and we have another one here. And Yeah, this one seems though, it's not for battle. It's not for Levites. It's to understand who's going to inherit how much land to divide equally across the different tribes. Yep. And although many have died, they've been having babies mm-hmm. and they've outpaced the death rate uh, with the babies that they've had. And so, um, yeah. Which is just an indication of God's provision and I can't think of the word. Yeah, they're being fruitful. They're they're multiplying. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And Moses, Eliezer, Caleb, and Joshua are the only sort of leftovers from the the first census, at least amongst the men. And so Mm -hmm. uh, if it's a land distribution, like uh, Sarah had just said, so what happens when um, you're a a woman and um, your father has died? There's no sons. There's no... um, um, there's no head of house per se uh, in this situation. And that's what uh, the next story is about. These daughters come and say, hey, our dad died. We, he had no sons. Uh, do we get land? Uh, and, and what do we do about it? And Moses consults with God. And the answer is yes, you get land. And ultimately, they, they work with their uncles to get it. But God ultimately provides a way um, and, and a law basically around uh, the property should pass to the daughter should, I, should there be no son in the household, which Honestly, uh, given uh, pretty normative laws in the ancient Near East, this was pretty progressive right. uh, that the that the land didn't get redistributed to some other man. Uh, that these women could inherit these these properties. Yeah, and even that they had the freedom to go and advocate to Moses on their own behalf is pretty progressive within yeah, this culture. So absolutely. I think we see God's provision for women here when many most, if not all other cultures were not doing this. Yeah. Yeah. These women brought up the objection and God and Moses agreed and it was great. And, um, we get a, a clear secession plan for Moses. who's sort of on the tail end of his life here. Uh, and, uh, it's going to be this Joshua who will be the one who will take it on, uh, the mantle of leadership for the country. He won't get to do all the stuff that Moses does because Moses is certainly unique. Uh, but, um, he, he will be the official leader of the Israelites, uh, following Moses. Yeah. And as, as Moses prepares to kind of hand everything off to Joshua, I think it's, it's just beautiful to see his love for Israel. They cause him a lot of hurt and harm and struggle and strife, but he continues to pray for them. And he doesn't want them to be like sheep without a shepherd. Yep. So Moses is living under the consequences of his own sin, but he continues to pour out his life and his love for Israel. Yep. 
and he gets this hand on commissioning, which uh, we get both in the Old and New Testament, sort of formal designation of role or office or title or um, ministry task. Do you think that's, you can say no to this, but do you think it's kind of similar to the fact, you know, of course, that Jesus is the better Moses. He took on consequences and burden of our sin, um, and he continues to intercede for us. But then we have this great commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go. Do you think, I don't know, am I making too too much of a connection here? Maybe. I'd probably have to think about it a little bit more. Um, but it could be there. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so we get this whole chapter about a, a whole bunch more offerings um, with more details about some of these offerings. Some of them are a little bit different than some of the previous offerings. Uh, not, not in title necessarily, but in um, descriptions or, or things. Maybe uh, the, the supplies are different now and God's making provisions for them. So maybe they're running a little low on wine. And so a strong drink will be fine for a drink offering or stuff like that. So there's definitely some differences in some of the ways that some of these play out. And then at least the addition of monthly offerings. I think that's a new one uh, as far as I remember um, in, in sort of the practices of, of offerings. But but we, we get Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Booths. We get sort of all these um, reiterations of, of these festivals mm-hmm. and the different sacrifices. And so Sarah, I know you like the monthly offerings. So I do like the monthly offerings. <laughs> I think it's cool that every single month they stopped and paused and remembered all that God had done and all that God would do. And what if we were to not exactly have a monthly offering feast, but what if we were to individually stop at the end of every month and recall how we have seen God work and then just pray and celebrate God's work in the future month? I mean, taking every kind of time change as a chance to stop and honor and celebrate God is, it would be a good rhythm to set up. Uh, and so, um, I think it's also an important to note. I, I think sometimes we read all these feasts and stuff like that. And, and I don't know if we realize that like, these are parties, like they are celebrations for God's people. And, and other than the day of atonement, which would have had a much more somber feel, it was a day of fasting. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Um, all the other ones were just parties. It's like, here's your holidays. Here's Christmas and Thanksgiving and 4th of July and all like, these are the, 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 the Jewish people's version of that with, with obviously a, a focus on Yahweh and a celebration of who Yahweh is, Yahweh's provision, all the sort of things that the history that they have with Yahweh. And so God wants his people to party and, and it commands his people to celebrate and to have these, these celebrations. And, um, it's so tied into his character. Like he wants yeah. his people to be filled with joy and to celebrate and, and to have the focus on the celebration certainly still on him, but to celebrate. And so um, his his glory and our joy are, are totally interconnected in these festivals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, I mean, God tells us to party one day a week and then apparently one day a month. And it goes on with these other kinds of celebrations. And why, if we are supposed to celebrate, does he put so many restrictions and requirements around it? Well, I, you see what Israel does if those restrictions aren't given and what we do, you know, I mean, they right. make a golden calf and um, they have a giant orgy. Like those aren't, those are not God honoring ways to celebrate what God has done. So he gives a structure and, and, and provision, I guess, or gives a structure around these celebrations, but they are for us to experience right. joy in, in ways that are going to bring honor and glory to God right. and satisfaction to us. Like as, as a dad, I like giving my kids candy. Like, it brings them joy. It makes them happy. But I'm also not going to give them the whole bucket of candy from Halloween. Like, uh, cause I know that'll be problematic for them. I know that'll be detrimental to them and make them sick. And so God provides sort of guideposts and, and, and ways to go, okay, for your maximum joy and, and for you to glorify me here, here's what I'm doing for yeah. you. And so, um, yeah. 
and then we turn the corner and suddenly talk about vows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, the, the instructions of men's pretty straightforward. If you make a vow, you should keep it. Uh, but your yes be yes and your no be no. Yeah, but uh, with women, there's a little bit more of a conversation. And a lot of this has to do with sort of the conversation around headship, uh, which maybe we'll unpack a little bit more in a different podcast. But um, the, the idea of, of a male head of the household and um, if the father or a husband is not there, then the women are free to make vows and there's no consequences and um in terms of, uh, or there's no, um, there's no one that they have to answer to per se. And, uh, but if there is a husband, if there is a father in the house that they would fall uh, a little bit under their, um, um, leadership or, or, or headship. Yeah. And so, um, if they make a vow that the, the, the dad or the husband, uh, deems not, not a good vow or not useful or whatever at that moment, um, they have a very small window that they can say, no, that's not okay. Uh, if they find out later on that, hey, like, I wish you wouldn't have made that vow. They're not allowed to say anything after that. Um, but um, if, if say, a woman goes, hey, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow, and the husband's like, well, uh, we got to pick our crop of grapes, like, next week. So, um, no, I'm not going to let you take that <laughs> vow because I, I need you to help me finish this work. Like, there's, there's, there's reasons that I think uh, this would have played out as it did. Yeah. And then uh, there's this vengeance on Midian um, uh, story. And so the battle with the Midianites continues, which God said was going to happen uh, coming out of the previous uh, deal with the Baal worship and, and, and that happening before. And so um, they have the battle and then the leaders bring back all these women and, and children. And Moses is like, what are you doing with, with all these people? And um, it's causing, it's causing some strife, but you got to remember going back to that story, like the, how, a, how terrible Baal and usually Asherah worship was and that the the women in the story were were culpable in in what was happening. Uh, it wasn't like they were innocent bystanders to to some of the story, but that they were part of of and and have been uh, implicated in sort of the BL worship that's happening amongst the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And so um, they're they're not innocent, at least in terms of the judgment. At least the women that had participated. There are women who are innocent in the story, and they're the ones who hadn't participated in the Baal worship. And, and they are given provision into the, the world of Israel when the other women ultimately are sentenced to death because of their culpability. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that there are provisions for all these people in all these lands. They can come and join the people of Israel. They just have to join and convert to Judaism and follow Yahweh's laws and ways. You cannot live among these people and continue to worship your false gods or do the things you used to do before. Yep. So, and, and there's, yeah, there's, they have a choice. Yep. And so there's a lot of spoils. A lot of them go to the 12,000 soldiers. The other half goes to Israel, but it's a lot. Midian apparently had a lot of stuff. Uh, but I also want to take a moment. Oh, go ahead. I, I just want to, I do want to say that like reading these stories, they're hard for me. I don't always understand them right away. And it's hard for me to reconcile what I learned and know about God with some of these stories. And they're going to continue to come up as we read. And so I think the other approach for me, at least, is to kind of see it as like an exciting sort of challenge. I know God is good. I know he's kind. I know he's faithful. I know he's just. So how can I reconcile this story with the character that I know is true of God. And there is a way to do it. We don't always understand all of God's ways, but I encourage you, if you struggle with it, that's okay. But keep fighting for what you know is true of God and how that true character of God can fit into this story and this understanding that we learn about God. I think I think one of the ways um, that becomes um, 
easier and I don't think it's um, devaluing actually scripture. I think it's upholding our understanding of inerrancy while um, talking about genre and all these kind of things is to, is to deal with the, the idea that um, in, in ancient texts, when you deal with um, war and battle and conquering, there was a way of writing that actually helps date some of these books into the time frame that, that these books are written. And so um, there's a way to talk about military conquest where um, you tend to use hyperbole and exaggeration. Other writers around the time that Moses and others would be writing this kind of stuff would be writing with this exaggeration. So when they had a conquered battle, they would say, we wiped everybody out. When they it's not necessarily true. And we're going to see this in Joshua. We're going to hear him. We, we killed all the Canaanites, but then we find out there's plenty of Canaanites who are still alive. And so, um, I think the same way we do with sports. I think there's some parallels to sometimes we talk about that. So like, we'll say like, Oh, that team totally destroyed this other team today. And, and like they couldn't get anything past them and stuff like that. But then you find out like the end of the basketball games, like 121 to 102 or something like that. It's like, well, that doesn't feel like you destroyed them, but <laughs> you might've been in control of the whole game. And, and that might've been true, but um, destruction seems like a, a hyperbole, a hyperbolic statement. And I think the literary genre of conquering of conquest, um, carries with it in the ancient times this idea of hyperbole. And it's not to say that those words aren't true. It's not to say the battle didn't take place. I, I think I affirm that all those things are true. But I think it's important to also think about how people would have chosen to write stories in their time frame and how they told these stories um, in, in a way that actually makes this book fit the time frame that it was actually written in, uh, as opposed to the, we want the, the, the historicity cause we're products of, uh, the enlightenment. So tell us the details in accurate form. It's like, no, that they wouldn't have done that. That wouldn't even been on their mind to do it that way. And so, um, making sure as we read these conquest stories that, that maybe as we read them, um, we read them as more brutal than they probably actually are. Um, so mm-hmm. anyways, uh, and so two of the tribes uh, end up settling uh, or wanting to settle in this uh, area that's a little bit outside the promised land. Right. Uh, and, and, and so Moses actually responds pretty annoyed with bad. these two tribes or two and a half tribes, basically, uh, that's like, hey, we're going to the promised land. Don't stop here to, to raise your ca- cows or whatever. Yeah, and not um, help anybody else yeah. get there. And then eventually they're like, okay, we'll help you fight the battles. And, and then as long as we're okay coming back here. And, uh, and so Moses seems to be okay with that good session Mm -hmm. and uh and then we get a recounting of everything that's happened uh sort of uh you what cities they stopped at and made camp at uh it's like a little trip down memory lane as we sort of wrap up the book here i'm like picturing parents like on a road trip you know how they used to have the little slides that they would click through and then we stopped here and then we stopped here and then we stopped here but i mean this is a narrative book this is chronicling the history of a people and so while it may not be super interesting for us it's important to have that information yep Hey, remember all the places we went? And so, um, yeah. And, and then we get a statement, uh, that they are to drive out the inhabitants, but, um, there's, there's like a, a last section here that feels like haunting for the Israelites. It says, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, uh, from before you, then as shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides. And you, they will trouble you in the land in which you lived. Um, and so, like, we will find out that yeah. Israel is not always great about driving, truly driving out everyone. And they do become as pricks to the side of thorns. Uh, and so, um, it's, it's a, 
it's a words that will come back to bite them uh, in the process here. Right. And even the instruction that the, I mean, they were to drive the people out of the land. And then their first instruction after that was to destroy any false gods and places of worship. And how often will we see as we read through um, First and Second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles about the times that these false god and worship and temples were put up in place because they invited idolatrous worship back into their into their place? Yeah, God, God, God does not. God has a really strong distaste for syncretism. The sort of a uh, mm. let's let's worship Yahweh, but also do this, and um, yet. I mean, uh, that's a that's a that's a condemnation on ways I could operate. Like, yes, God, I worship you as a provider, but I also look at my job and my paycheck as something I've earned, and in ways that I'll I will view and have a worldview that doesn't match what I profess about who God is and um, consumerism mixed with Yahweh. So it's yeah. not as explicit, I think, here in the West as uh, I'm mixing my worship with Yahweh with this worship of this other deity that's, that's has a spiritual nature to it. I think sometimes we do it um, with things like consumerism and capitalism and patriotism and stuff like that. Uh, that's a little more subtle uh, and, and probably more dangerous uh, because of that. And so, um, but God, God doesn't have a lot of tolerance for it. Luckily, like God has a lot of grace through Jesus for, for my sin, but uh, for me to be, very wary uh, of mixing my worship of Yahweh with a worship of anything else. Mm. Yeah. And then they get these chiefs to yep. work on dividing up the land. Yep. Eliezer and Joshua are going to help divide up the land with, with the chiefs and yeah, and the boundaries are laid out. So there we go. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's head to the New Testament. So Peter has had his amazing Cornelius experience. Seeing Gentiles come to faith yep. without converting to Judaism. And we're going to get a repeat of that. So uh, if you had the weekend off, now you're going to hear the story again. Uh, and uh, this group of the circumcision party, uh, it's not really a party, and the word party is not even in the Greek, but uh, this group that seems to be really concerned about the circumcision um, is really curious about Peter's testimony, and Peter gives it. Uh, mm-hmm. And Luke goes out of his way as as the storyteller to go, okay, I'm going to record all of Peter's words again just to reiterate this whole story because it's so significant. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, the the people who were advocating for circumcision were, I mean, they were kind of valid in their arguments. Not that it was right, but think back to what we read in Exodus about how Moses hadn't circumcised his son and God almost wiped them all out. Yep. I mean, circumcision was required to be... Jewish and to be a follower of Yahweh. Yep. Yeah. If you were ethnically Jewish, particularly, you you better circumcise. Um, there was a lot of debate amongst the rabbis of what to do with Gentiles, like the, the God-fearers I talked about last week who um, would worship Yahweh but choose not to be circumcised. And so uh, one camp said they're not really believers. The other camp said that's fine because Abraham believed by faith and wasn't circumcised. So um, you had a little bit of that debate uh, even before Paul weighs in on it. Um, so... Um, yeah, so it depends on the crowd, but likely the crowd that would be in Jerusalem would be this crowd that would say, no, you have to be circumcised. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but we'll see Paul weigh into that crowd next week. Yeah. And so we changed scenes. Uh, so we're in Jerusalem. Now we're in Antioch. So a quick change again. Um, and the church is scattered. It's in Asia Minor. And uh, and I'll, I'll have a map included so you know where this Antioch is. We're going to learn about another Antioch next week. So um, there's multiple Antiochs and there's a reason for that. But uh, there are... Yeah, there, there's this whole movement that's starting to take place, and and it's it's not 
100% clear of whether the converts in Antioch are Gentiles who have come to faith and the Holy Spirit has come upon them. Those kind of stories were not given those details, or whether they are Greek-speaking, greek culture Jews that are coming to faith as well. Because up to this point, Cornelius and his men are really like the focal story of a Gentile coming to faith. But, um, but yet, this is a very diverse town. And they come from different backgrounds. They come from different nations um, at the same time. This is sort of the nature of Antioch here. Yeah. So we see, though, that the persecution following Stephen's death has had the opposite effect of what they thought. The disciples were scattered, and God's gospel goes international because of it. Yeah, absolutely. They are definitely going to the nations. It's whether the Mm -hmm. nations and what it looks like for the Gentiles to be included that they'll have to rest tackle through next week. Yeah. And remember here that quite a bit of time has taken place as well. We know Saul has been kind of laying low and growing up in his faith in Tarsus, um, which could have been up to 14 years while he was there. So there's been some time in church growth that hasn't been documented. Yep. Uh, But we'll we'll get... Saul included in the story again in a second. So uh, James uh, is the first apostle that we know about that was killed uh, in this uh, story. And so um, he, uh, we don't necessarily get another apostle explicitly laid out in the New Testament who gets killed, but uh, James does. And why James does and Peter does in this story, I, I don't know. Um, God's favor and keeping Peter alive and versus James, I, I don't know. But uh, Peter is kept alive. And uh, I even love the, the the play on here of Peter previously as stated, as we read a few weeks ago, um, uh, we're here because we want to please God and not men. And then Herod's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this just to please people. Uh, he's going to imprison Peter just to, just to please the people. Uh, and so there's such a difference between Herod and the followers of Jesus in the storyline. And I think, I think Luke's making a little dig to make sure that that's clear. Yeah, and we're seeing a couple reasons for persecution here so far. We know Saul was persecuting the church because of religious zeal, and here Herod is persecuting just because he wants to please man. Yep. But Peter's rescued. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an angel messenger from God, sort of this little sneaky covert sneak out rescue mission that happens. Um, I'm sure Peter, even Peter's like, is this a vision? I don't even know. Is this real? Uh, And uh, immediately he goes to the house uh, with John Mark's uh, house, uh, that uh, we will we'll see John Mark as part of the storyline as we go. And um, there's a group that's gathered and it's praying and Peter shows up and, and the, the girl who comes to the door, Rhoda is like, uh, Peter's here and she runs away and doesn't even let him in. And so uh, poor, poor girl is known in history as the girl who forgot to let Peter in the door. But um, yeah. And so he shows up and I'm sure even, even the people are surprised. I'm, at first they're like, it's probably just Peter's ghost. Like Peter's probably dead because James died. We've been praying and James died. Maybe we've been praying and Peter died too. They, mm-hmm. they seem surprised uh, that, that Peter truly got out uh, and God worked that miracle. Yeah. And then Peter leaves Jerusalem Yep. Um, and this is where we kind of see the primary role of church leadership in Jerusalem go to James, not the one who died, but the brother of Jesus. Yep. Yeah, we will see that, and he'll be on that council that we'll deal with next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get the death of Herod. Uh, so um, Luke at least wants to include his death. Uh, now, now that he has killed James, we're going to watch Herod get killed by God, basically. And uh, in, in 44 AD, there's all sorts of stories in Rome that exist in their history and stuff like that. But Herod seemed to have died in a very public way um, at, at some sort of games or festivities. He was making pronouncements, uh, and he died. And people had hailed him as a god uh, for various reasons, whether it's shiny armor, whether it's uh, uh, just because of his role and where he stood in in um, the, the sort of forum that he was in. Um, but yeah. Yeah. We see God 
through these last couple chapters, very directly intervening to make sure his work goes forward. That is through delivering Peter from prison. That is through taking out Herod. That is through even the circumstances with Ananias and Sapphira and other things. God is actively working to keep his gospel going forth. Yep. And so it will truly go forth uh, as we get to the next story. Uh, yeah. We, we get... Um, Paul and Barnabas sent off, uh, leaving sort of Israel or even the boundaries of Israel to, to head to places like Cyprus. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the laying out of hands, which we just saw in uh, the, the Moses and Joshua story. And, and so uh, it's still, to me, a little bit complex of how Gentile uh, Barnabas and Saul were really open to, um, what they really thought about Gentile converts and stuff like that. We will see that get unpacked at the end of this, at the second half of this chapter. Uh, but um, they're setting off and they go to Cyprus where there were plenty of Jews and they will go to Asia Minor where there were plenty of Jews. About one in five people in Asia Minor were Jewish at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, and they go to the synagogues and they preach in the synagogues. And so um, how this the whole thing transitions to the, to the Greeks uh, is is an interesting question, uh, particularly uh, until chapter 15. But um, yeah, so they sail off and they head to Cyprus first and uh, we'll include some maps just so you know sort of how this missionary journey will, will take place. Yeah. So I just want to make a couple notes on the Church of Antioch here, though. What we, yeah, what we like about them, what we see is... Um, they are, like Chris mentioned earlier, they're multicultural and multi-ethnic. Look at the names of their leadership. We don't know if they're Jews or non-Jews, but we do know that they represent diversity. Yeah, and then they countries. are sending-oriented. Their prayer and fasting leads them to set apart and send out some of their very best. Um, they are seeking to be led by the Spirit. So this is a great example for us of what of, of a church that we want to look like. Yeah, I've, I've often said of Resonate uh, that we would love to be a church like this where— um, Honestly, you don't you don't really know a ton about the leadership of the church. You, you don't hear a lot of these names beyond this, but um, they've they've sent out some of the most influential people in the story of the church. And so, um, to to be a church that um, is is willing to lose for the sake of the kingdom, mm-hmm. I mean, to to lose Barnabas and Paul uh, is a pretty significant loss. Yeah. Um, but they are willing to sacrifice for that the gospel to go forth. Yeah. And then uh, Barnabas and. The ESV still says Paul, but it's Saul still to this point, but it does change in the story. But they're on Cyprus, uh, the island of Cyprus, and they encounter a Jewish magician, which um, what a Jewish magician looks like, I don't know. But um, he, he's obviously not a great character in the story, uh, and Luke does not want us to paint that way, and Paul does not respond to him that way. Um, but uh, we also see the introduction of this guy named Sergius Paulus as well. And 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 remember, like um, if you're listening to a story and you know sort of officers and ranks, like this is like this is like a cabinet member in the president's household. Uh, Sergius Paulus would have been in a position that 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 would have been extremely extremely high up. And so one of one of Paul's first interactions is with this guy, and um, it seems like one of his first Gentile converts. And so um, does Paul adopt his name because he's switching to his identity with um, his, his mission to the Gentiles? Maybe did Paul have that name before because he at least had Roman citizenship. So he might've had a Greek or a, a, a Greek or Roman name maybe, but it's very clear, at least in Luke's narrative 
that Paul is absolutely taking on his identity as the missionary to the Gentile mm-hmm. world and will identify Saul from here on out basically as Paul. Um, and so uh, it's definitely a switch uh, as well. And and we're going to see the Sergius Paul's thing play out by the fact of where Paul goes next, next week. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's like there's two stories. There's the magician story. There's Paul confronting the magician and 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 then sort of the, the response from Sergius Paulus to that whole story uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. And it even seems like Paul, uh, Sarah brought this up when we were talking before, like Paul, Paul tries to do the thing that he was converted around, which is like, uh, uh, you're going to be blind and you're not going to be able to see, but uh, maybe you'll convert. <laughs> and um, it doesn't seem to actually take place <laughs> right? for him. Yeah. So um, I don't think Paul tries that again from that point on. Uh, but anyways. Yeah. So I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to next week. I think it'll be a good uh, unpacking too. Mm-hmm. So Psalms and Proverbs, we got Proverbs seven. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's a huge emphasis on sexual purity here, and Proverbs in general puts a lot of emphasis on sexual purity. Yeah, uh, this chapter is just a reminder that we need to play close attention about the approach of sexual temptation. It's not something that happens quickly. It's like a slippery slope. Right. Uh, but the author calls it a matter of life and death. It's really, really important for us to guard that. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, Proverbs, uh, many view it as like a, a dad giving advice to his son. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, I mean, the same way that a mom would give advice to a daughter, like stay away from like the promiscuous abusers, like the people that are just utilizing sexuality for their gain. Like that's not good. You don't want to be around that. And it will lead you to destruction. Uh, and then Psalm 111, um, which is a celebration of, yeah. of addressing God's provision of food, protection, all that kind of stuff of thanks for doing what you do, God. Yeah. So next week, what are we looking out for? So I would say watch the Gospel Project video on Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy is basically Moses' final speech to Israel. It's kind of like his final goodbye. So what does he say? Pay attention to thinking of like what your last words to the people you love would be. And that's kind of what we're getting from Moses here. Uh, New Testament, look at the similar similarities and differences in Paul and Barnabas's different experiences in different cities. What do they do that's the same? What do they do that's different depending on where they are? And we're going to spend probably quite a bit of time talking about the Jerusalem Council next week. So think about that. Yeah. Yeah. For me, Deuteronomy, um, there's going to be a lot of repeating and things you've heard before. That's kind of the nature of this book. And like we, we could have kind of wrapped up the Torah already, but um, some of it's not going to be exactly the same as you heard it before. And this is where like, it's interesting to probably bring out the cross references. Okay. How did this get stated in Leviticus or Exodus and how is it stated now? And, and what, what more is being said? And um, I think that, 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 helps you sort of see the progression because Deuteronomy is definitely the last of the books written. And so to kind of see where they sort of arrived at uh, related to these laws and how to interpret and how to apply some of them. Mm-hmm. And then the new Testament. Um, yeah. I, I think as we get to that Jerusalem council, like just the beauty of the church tackling a very controversial, very divisive topic and, and how they went around, how they went about that. Um, and how they ultimately sort of came to, um, uh, uh, even even though they probably weren't all on the same page, but they sort of go, okay, like we're going to follow um, uh, the decision of the council and, and to move forward with unity around that. And so um, I think it's super interesting, though I think yeah. John Mark doesn't buy into the unity argument, but that's another story. Uh, and so, um, yeah, start looking at that and just how that council sort of plays out in the life of, of how the church will now move forward. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thanks, y'all. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.